Hi, I'm Greg Yellen with Reynolds & Reynolds, and this is Connected. Uh, today's a really exciting episode I've been looking forward to for a while. I get to talk with Doug Bowles, who's the president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, hopefully we get into a lot of different things. Doug's got an interesting background, but uh, Doug, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love an opportunity to talk about the Speedway, especially with folks who kind of understand the automotive business as well. It makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Doug, if you don't mind, a lot of stuff I want to touch on, and you've been doing a lot of great things uh, at the Speedway and with IndyCar in general, but um, you have a, a fairly interesting background. Um, you know, I was just kind of reading a little bit, and um, you were an attorney, and then you ran a couple of marketing firms, you had a race team. So, if you don't mind, just, just share a little bit of your background and how you got to uh, to kind of where you are. Yeah, it's a little bit of a winding road to get to where I am, but but the one constant really, as far as back as I can remember as a kid even, is my passion for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500 in particular, which means then you have a passion for IndyCar. And, and so even as a kid growing up, I really wanted to figure out a way to have motorsport as part of what I did for a living. And, and my first job out of Butler University was... Uh, working for, um, worked at the state house actually for some elected officials and then worked for the mayor of Indianapolis. And I found ways even in those jobs to connect my passion for, for motorsport to, uh, the work that I, that I was doing there. And ultimately uh, that led me to an opportunity about 10 years out of school, uh, where I was able to, uh, be a co-founder of an IndyCar team called Panther racing. And, and in my time at Panther racing, I was a co-owner and chief operating officer there. We actually won 15 races and two IndyCar championships with a, a driver named Sam Hornish. We won races with Scott Goodyear, Sam Hornish, and, and Thomas Schechter, and uh, was a lawyer as well. And ultimately, when I sold my piece of the racing company, I practiced law for a while and worked for some marketing firms. But still in the motorsport space, I had to take on other business, obviously, because there wasn't enough there. And then in 2010, uh, the Speedway hired me uh, full time, and I've been here for 13 years and in this role this role for 10. But but the biggest piece I think of it was, and I tell young adults this when they get out of school, if you're really passionate about something, especially if you, you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage, you have the flexibility to be focused on what you really want to do, then take those first few years out of school and really try and get yourself in a spot where you can where you can make a living uh, with your passion. And, and that's really what I try to stay focused on. What could I do to make sure I had every opportunity to work in motorsport? And, and I walk in this place every day here at the Speedway and, and still so thankful. I can't believe I get a key to this place. And what I do for a living <laughs> is, is represent the greatest race course in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Sam Hornish Jr. there. Sam, um, I'm, I'm sure you know know or knew him certainly fairly well. Uh, he was from outside of Archbold, Ohio. Yep. Um, I grew up in a little bitty town called Pioneer, Ohio, which is about 20 miles from Archbold. My uh, my grandparents actually had an auto parts store in Archbold. Um, so really familiar with that area. Well, you know, when, when Sam drove for us and we won the first championship with him in, in 2001, we did a big uh, Defiance Archibald tour, right, where we took Sam back home with his merch trailer and, and celebrated and you know, all the radio stations and just the people that came out of, uh, you know, came out of the woodwork in that area in Ohio. And anytime, you know, anytime I'm heading up to Detroit now, you drive from Fort Wayne through 24 up through uh, Defiance and Archibald and all that. I can't help but think about, you know, Sam Horace Jr. And, and just how much he meant to us at the team and, and how fun it was to have that small town kid uh, do such amazing things uh, in an IndyCar. Yeah. Yeah. So where did, um, got to ask, where did that passion for racing in the Indy 500 come from? I mean, as a kid, did you go to the race a lot? Is that where it came from? Yeah. Was it a family thing? Did, did you race? Like, where did that passion come from? So the passion really came from my dad. So my dad, um, was a circuit court judge uh, for the bulk of my uh, life growing up, but prior his first job out of school 
I was working for the United States Auto Club and United States Auto Club actually sanctioned IndyCar racing in the 60s. And my dad was, they called him a yearbook editor back then because they didn't have a true PR guy, but he went on the road and did PR and then built out the year end yearbook and the point system and all of that. So I grew up in a house where uh, racing was just part of what we what we talked about all the time. So I don't think I had a choice. I mean, it was what my, <laughs> my dad was into. And and then ultimately, I, I raced a little out of college. Um, I still get in a race car now if I get an opportunity. We had a vintage race here a few weeks ago, and I drove a, a Kenny Wallace Cup car and actually got on the podium, which was kind of cool for me and um, more of an open wheel guy in terms of what I've driven. But but it really comes from my dad and just growing up in the in a household where what we knew was was racing. That's what we talked about. And still to this day, I talk to my dad every day. And, it, and the first the first question when when he picks up the phone is any racing news because my dad's my dad's uh, 81 and and still loves the sport. No, that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. And and when you were part of uh, part of Panther Racing, um, one of the other co-owners was Jim Harbaugh, right? Yep. <laughs> All right. So so are you um, are you by default a, a Michigan fan at this point or uh, are you guys just acquaintances? What? No, I'm definitely a Michigan fan because of Jim. Um, so when we started, when we started Panther racing, it, he was the quarterback of the Colts. Right. And one of our partners that was starting, it was a Chevy dealer here named Gary Pettigo. And Gary had a direct relationship with Jim and we got talking with Jim and he said, Hey, I'd, I'd love to be part of that. And so, so the number of the car was number four, cause that was Jim's Jersey number. Jim was obviously here uh, in the community. And the neat thing about Jim is he was active active with us when he wasn't, when they weren't in football season, he was on the road with us, uh, which was great for our team, for our guys to have sort of that team leader. And then just over the time, obviously getting to know Jim and, and seeing, seeing Jim at, at the racetracks or in the shop. And then over time, you know, when Jim went on to pursue his football coaching career, you know, for a while I was a 49ers fan and then you end up being a <laughs> fan. And, and uh, you know, the great thing about Jim and, and I love this when I get a chance to talk about Jim, you know, what you see with Jim is really kind of what you get. And I think as a player uh, to, to have somebody as your coach who, you know, is going to roll his sleeves up and, and dig with you and fight with you. Uh, that was the thing that I loved about having him on our team. He could just rally the troops to get them excited about competing, the, the pit stops, the things we did over the wall. Uh, and he was, he's one of those blue collar leaders that you just know is going to be right in the trenches with you. And, and, uh, uh, and Jim's pretty outspoken in, in his thoughts. And I know, I know if you're an Ohio state fan, you're probably not a Jim Harbaugh fan, but, but Jim is, Jim's a pretty neat guy and continue to continue to stay in touch with him. In fact, one of the first things I did here at Speedway well, we had Jim uh, right after he'd gone in the Super Bowl of the 49ers. He was actually our pace car driver for the Indy 500, which was a lot of fun in 2013. That is fun. That. Yeah, that is fun. That is fun. Yeah, I, uh, I, I am a Buckeye. I went to Ohio State, so it, it's a uh, that's all right though. You know, it's it's good. Finally, it's it's nice to have that uh, that rivalry heating back up again. And, uh, a, lot of, sure. a lot of fun. But no, that's that's uh, I I had read that and I thought that was really interesting. That uh, just that collection of folks that you talked about, um, yep. and I think a few others as well. But uh, it seems like. Seems like a lot of a lot of fun, and it seems like you have pretty fond memories. Yeah, it was, uh, and then, it was great memories. Yeah, that's good. And then if I'm if I'm reading the timeline correctly, so after you kind of got out of Panther Racing, um, then the the group unfortunately kind of became the Buffalo Bills, right? And was it like four years in a row finished second at the uh, yeah. at the five hundred? Yeah. So so that was after I so I I, I um, sold my piece in two thousand seven. 
Um, and then the team, yeah, the team had some pretty good success. If you think about that, yeah. you didn't win the 500, but the, the number of seconds that they had and nearly won it in one of our most historic races in our 100th anniversary race in 2011 with a rookie named J.R. Hildebrand leading the race there at the end. In fact, leading the race until just a few hundred yards before start finish line. Uh, you know, one of our most uh, epic uh, finishes in our history, one that I'm sure Jr. and the team would love to have forgotten because <laughs> Jr. was leading and unfortunately crashed coming out of the fourth turn on the last lap. What I love about that finish, though, two things. The one thing I really love about that finish is he Jr. crashes and the basically the right side of the car is gone. It would have been very easy to just sort of give up. But he figured out a way to keep the crashed car against the outside wall and keep his foot in the throttle and did everything he could with just two wheels to try and cross start finish line. And that's happening. I'm thinking as the promoter, how cool is this going to be that the winning car is going to have to be put on a wrecker and brought to victory lane? And then do you ever do you ever fix that car if it won or leave it as it as it crossed the start finish line? Uh, but the other thing that's cool about it, Dan Weldon, who uh, was one of the most popular winners in our history, picks up his second win in that historic year. Unfortunately, uh, we lost Dan uh, later in a car crash at the end of that year. But the exciting part for me at that point in time was here's a guy that loves the speedway and now is a two-time winner. And as uh, kind of the newly um, anointed promoter of the speedway at that time, I thought this is going to be fantastic. I this young guy that's going to be able to help me promote the Indy 500 for years to come. And, and unfortunately we lost him, but the win, the way he celebrated, it, it kind of changed the way that drivers celebrate the Indy 500 uh, and you see it now, just the passion that they have and the excitement they have. And they don't just drive into victory lane and sort of wave. They all have their own little their own little stamp that they put on it. And, and uh, that really started with Dan in 2011. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, speaking of, of promotion, I did want to talk with you a decent amount about um, 100 Days to Indy. Mm-hmm. So this was the, the first year kind of doing that docu-series on the CW. Um, I watched it. I thought it was fantastic. I thought the team did a, a wonderful job. Um, but wanted to get into, you know, kind of the background, the ideation. Um, clearly, I, I mean, I'm assuming the, the success uh, of, of Drive to Survive had something to do with, um, you know, wanting to go down this path. But uh, very curious from your perspective, you know, where where this came from and how you pulled it off, how it came together. So a couple of things I think were really instrumental in it. You're correct. I mean, for a period of time, our team, the IndyCar team, Mark Miles, Penske Entertainment president, uh, those of us here at the Speedway, we're trying to figure out how do we have that docuseries similar to Drive to Survive uh, that Formula One had had that really tells the story of the folks that are driving the cars, but that story behind them so you can really get uh, get to know them. So over the last couple of years, we've really been trying to find the right partner to do that. And then Sean Compton came along. Sean Compton um, with CW is a Hoosier, uh, goes to the Indy 500 every year. And and Sean reached out and said, hey, I've got this great idea. I'd love to work uh, with some folks and see if we can't put something together with Vice. And so Vice and CW really through Sean Compton uh, is what took us to the next level and got us comfortable with the whole programming. And and between Vice and CW and Pinsky Entertainment, we were able to uh, to pull that together. And it was a short run, right? We had seven, six or seven shows. And the idea behind that was let's focus on the Indy 500 and the lead up to it. So it told the story of sort of preseason testing through the racing all the way up to the point uh, that the Indy 500 took place. Looking back on it, 
the Indy 500 was so dramatic this year, especially with qualifying the way it ended and Graham Rahal not making it. And then Stefan Wilson actually getting hurt the day after and Graham getting back in the show. Um, so, so we weren't really able to tell some of those really compelling stories in the detail we wanted to. So we're already working with, uh, with CW and others about how do we continue that program, uh, certainly for next year, but are there ways that we can carry it through, through the rest of the season? But it, it was a series meaning the IndyCar series, looking for the right spot. And then you find that passionate leader in Sean Compton at CW who'd had a conversation with Vice and then it all just sort of came together. And when when that happened, from the moment that Sean called to the moment that that was agreed to and we're actually in production, it was really just a handful of weeks to get that program together. And we were really pleased with the way it came out. Yeah, you should be. It was it was something to be proud of. I think the team did a great job. Um, how involved were you being, you know, kind of a uh, a promoter, as you, you mentioned a minute yep. ago, and, and having a background in marketing? I mean, this this has to appeal to you on some level, right? I mean, you kind of probably wanted to get involved. Uh, I don't know if you had time, but uh, just curious how involved were you able to be? I think there were a lot of us here uh, that were pretty involved with it. Obviously, the vice team, what is good at what they do and so and clearly cw is as well but they didn't know our sport so a lot of what we had to do was help educate them on the sport help them tell the stories point them to some of those compelling stories that that we thought might play out over the course of those hundred days leading up to the indy 500 so you had a you had a team at at indycar team here at the speedway and and pinsky entertainment that were were involved involved in it you know i was really really substantially involved in a couple of the shows the kickoff show which started with our 100 day out party and then we did a really cool thing where uh elio castroneves actually placed his four-time winter brick uh in the in the yard of bricks and he and roger pinsky unveiled it so that was a, a key piece of one of our shows uh, but then it was really a lot of our our boots on the ground here folks that were day-to-day uh helping uh, work through the show get them the access that they needed and then there were a handful of us that actually saw the first run of each show to make sure that you know, everything was accurate, that the, the footage they used made sense. We weren't trying, we weren't editing content. We were just making sure that, so for example, you might look at something and go, Hey, that, that shot that you've got from the St. Petersburg race isn't during the race. That was a qualifying shot or just to make sure that everything was, was uh, authentic as it could be. But the vice team did a fantastic job getting up to speed with virtually no understanding about our sport from the day that they started. What did you think of the balance between sport and personality, right? Because there was a lot of focus, as you know, probably intended on the drivers, right? And their their personal lives and the relationships with one another. Um, what did you, what'd you feel? Uh, how did you feel that came across kind of that, that balance between the sport and the driver? So I thought it was I thought the balance was pretty good for the fir- first season of doing a show like this. I think as, as we get further into it. It feels to me like there may be a little bit less on track than there is, but we had to set the stage for somebody that never understood our sport to understand the racing component of it. And then because we were starting brand new, some of those storylines, you kind of guessed at what some might be, but you weren't sure exactly where they were going to be. So you were still waiting for some of those storylines to play out uh, so you could begin telling the personality, the stories of the personalities behind it. So I think as you get further into that kind of show, you'll begin to see more of those personalities because those storylines are going to get to be a, a little bit stronger. We were really fortunate, I think, in in the way we sort of tagged um, Scott McLaughlin as one of the storylines and that the way that first race played out was pretty strong. Obviously, Joseph being a storyline and then winning the Indianapolis 500 uh, was one that uh, th- that played out in our favor as we go forward. But a lot of that 
trying to tell those stories behind the, once the drivers are out of the car, I think it's what drives, Drive to Survive does so well, is they, they connect peop, the people, the audience, to the drivers that they don't get a chance to see uh, when they're outside the race car. And I think that's what you know makes them feel like normal people and the challenges that they have and the battles that they have. And that's what makes those shows so fun. So I think in the future, you see a little bit more of that, maybe a little less on track. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's great. I think it, uh, it turned out really well. And, and, you know, you do have an IndyCar right now, a lot of just exciting young drivers. They're talented. They're likable. Um, you know, it really is as you're thinking about promotion and growing the sport. Um, it's a really good time for that right now. Well, the, the sport's so competitive. I think one of the things yeah. that Jay Fry and the team over at uh, IndyCar have done a good job on is is really giving, uh, you know, the platform, the cars, an opportunity for not just the big teams to be successful, but for the small teams to have a chance to win as well. And then that, when you, you see that in the, in the passes on track and, and just sort of the, the fact that, you know, 15 drivers probably can win every race. It's not just a handful. So that, that does make it exciting. And then you've got some really fun personalities outside of the race car and those folks, uh, you know, that's, that is what, that what ties people to our sport and gets them really interested in it. And, and our drivers understand right now that it's important for them to, to have a social following outside the, outside the car, to talk about what they're doing outside of the car, to, to really cement those relationships with our fans. So we have a, we have a, a, a group of drivers in the paddock that are as bought in about promoting the series and our sport uh, as the sport itself is. That's great. That's great. And, and you need it. Right. And that's uh, that's how you grow. And it's it's makes it makes it better for everybody. Right. It makes it better for the driver, makes it better for the speedway, makes it better for the fans. It's just a better experience all the way around. So that's 100%. that's great that you have that group. Yeah. And even the even the battles between the drivers, right, those personalities yeah. that may not get along as well. I think that that's compelling as a promoter. You know, I remind people that people don't buy tickets to go watch people hug and love each other, right? They buy tickets <laughs> to go root for somebody or root against somebody. So when you have those rivalries inside inside the paddock, on the track, in my mind, it's important to sort of elevate those. Now, do you have to get WWE with it? Not necessarily, because some of that, those are organic friction between the drivers. That I, But I think you have to highlight that because it does it does cause somebody to, to buy that ticket or to turn the TV on and watch the race because you want to root for or against somebody and and you you want it's just like voting right you go to vote for somebody or against somebody if it didn't matter one way or other you stay at home and and that's what for us our election day is every day we're on tv or every day we open the gates up to sell a ticket and we got to make sure we got people coming to the polls i like that analogy i like it a lot um so talk a little bit doug about you know we talked about 100 days to indy right leading up to the indianapolis 500 which is is just a massive event i can't imagine even begin to imagine everything that goes into into that right i mean you're probably planning already i'm, I'm quite certain for next year but um once you get to may right and this is something that that was fairly new to me honestly kind of this year um really getting to experience the speedway a little bit more this year um when when you're there and when you're really in Indianapolis, it seems like as a city, um, it's the month of May. It's mm-hmm. not the Indy 500. It's it's the month of May. Um, you know, there's stuff going on on the track every day. Um, as a president of of this massive facility, right, the largest sporting venue really in the the world, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong there. No, you're um, correct. With, it is. Yeah. Yeah, with with the the culminating in the largest sporting event in the world, right? Um, certainly one of the fastest. Um, what is that month like? It just—I mean, I, I can't imagine. You, you almost probably have to build up to it, and and then you get through it, and you got to exhale at the end. I would assume because you you probably can't come up for air in the middle. We really say this is May. It's what it's what it's about. It's it's how do you own. 
the month of May. And we're really fortunate that we have a community that embraces it as it embraces it as well. So if you look around the city, you know, you've got these this front yards and porches and people just celebrate May through checkered flags and racing things, you know, and all that. One of the things that I, I started doing this year as I was driving to work, if if I had a minute and somebody's front porch had, you know, their racing flags out, I would write a handwritten note and take it up to their front door and and knock on the front door. If they weren't there, I'd leave it there. Just said, Hey, thanks for making the Indy special because that's really what makes it so special are the people, uh, you know, the way they celebrate May alongside us, but we really start planning our, so this year's May, we started planning about 18 months before we're deep in planning the 108th running of the Indy 500, which isn't un- until next May. But, but you have to do that when you're, when you are the second largest city in the state of Indiana on race day inside our racetrack. So you have to do all the things that a small city would do, not just put on a race, but all those other things, whether it's law enforcement, it's hospitals and medical, all the things you have to provide 300,000 plus people. So we're starting to work to work through all of those uh, long ahead of time. But the preparation is what allows us once we get to race day or, or, or the month of May to just go ahead and execute. When we're in that execution mode, sure, things that you don't plan on happen, but when you're prepared, you're able to deal with those a lot better, a lot quicker, a lot more efficiently uh, because we prepared so much. And, and and when you've done it 107 times and it, it will make the 108th better just because a lot of it are, you know, we know sort of how to execute. Um, there are always there are always those things that come up. But for sure, um, you aren't you aren't coming up for a breath. Uh, I love the month of May. Uh, you get through it. And then what's crazy is the minute the checker flag falls for the next 500 hours, that's our ticket renewal period. So, so we get the most tickets that we'll sell um, happens in those, in those basically 21 days after the Indy 500. So our ticket team is flat out worrying about renewals and getting everybody set. You know, if we were to have the Indy 500 today and didn't sell another ticket, if, if, if only the tickets were purchased today, we would still be the largest sporting event in the world without the benefit of the next 10 months to continue to sell tickets, because that's how many tickets get renewed in those 500 hours. And then we're on track with something on track at the Indy 500 or the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, 150 days a year. So like right now, as we're doing this, there's two seaters going on where people are coming and riding two seaters. So we've got on track activity. So our real only breathing time, I guess, is probably December. Um, And then we, once you get to January 1st, it might as well be May and you're ready to roll again. (laughs) No, that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. It sounds like, um, uh, I don't know, just, just nonstop and, and, and controlled chaos. But so as you're in your 10 years as president of the Speedway, um, you know, you mentioned things come up when you're executing. What's what's one of those curveballs that stands out to you? What's one of those things where you just go, man, I, I didn't expect it. Like, I couldn't have seen that coming by any stretch. Well, it, some of the stuff is when you sit back after it's happened, you, you, you know, most of it, you could have said, well, I, I could have seen that coming. So one of the biggest ones for me was I, I hadn't been, I hadn't been announced as president yet. I was chief operating officer. I knew that the president situation was coming. Uh, so it's 2013 Indy 500 and it was right after the Boston bombing. So the Boston bombing had happened and big events were thinking about how do we make sure, you know, everybody's safe. And one of the things that we do that's relatively unique um, in sporting events is we allow folks to bring their coolers in. First of all, we couldn't feed everybody if we had to um, feed all 300,000 plus. So, so those coolers help us actually execute during the day. So we were trying to figure out how do we manage through that piece that's a really important piece for our customers uh, to be able to bring that cooler in with their, their drinks, their food, you know, the, the, and part of that's their tradition. 
So how do we manage through that, getting folks in the gates at the same time, making sure we're getting people through safely, safely. So it was really the first year that we um, were paying attention to what was in people's coolers, checking them, trying to set that up. Um, and we just underestimated how long it was going to take. And then on that morning for the 500, it was actually a little bit cold and it rained a little bit. So a lot of people didn't come in as soon as the gates opened. So people waited to see what was happening with the weather. And we had this big rush uh, of folks um, like 10 o'clock um, leading into the 500. I got a call from our folks in Pagoda Command, which is on the ninth floor of the Pagoda, where we have all our law enforcement and our folks. And we have all the, the, the cameras there. And they were panicked because so many of our gates were so backed up and we were worried that we weren't going to get everybody in uh, for the start of the Indy 500, which we didn't. Um, and it was one of those ones where looking back, we should have overstaffed, not really understanding how long it was going to take, not taking into account the potential of how weather might impact when people show up. It is May in Indiana. We should have known that. Um, so we made some mistakes there um, that we didn't think were going to be a problem. But as you look back and you and you do your postmortem on what happened, we probably should have been better prepared. So that was my you know my first experience as chief operating officers dealing with that uh, on race day. Uh, and and it, that that was definitely a challenge. But we we have things like that, you know, all the time. Weather's the biggest one. You just don't know when weather's coming, and then how is it going to impact the on-track product? And then how quickly do you need to let people know to get them out of the facility? We're not we're not a facility that was designed in an era when you said, okay, we need to think about places for folks to go. I mean, our track was built in 1909. Um, many of our grandstands were built shortly after World War II. I mean, they've been rebuilt, but they're in the same locations. Um, so those those are the challenges for me, the curveballs um, that become become a challenge for you that you got to you have to work through. Yeah. Yeah. So Indy 500, obviously huge, huge event. But like you said, there's things going on throughout the entire year. And we're here in kind of mid-July. So kind of halfway between the Indy 500 and, and Brickyard weekend. Um, yep. So I guess to the to the tune of, you know, things don't slow down for you. Uh, let's talk about Brickyard coming up a little bit. What's uh, what's that look like for you? How are things going there? And, um, uh, you know, obviously it's a unique event. Uh, yep. for, for the NASCAR series, certainly with the, with kind of the road course, but, uh, I don't know. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it is definitely a unique event. It, the, what makes it really unique is the only racetrack where you can go and on the same weekend, see IndyCar and NASCAR cup on the same weekend on the same racetrack. And that's one of the things that, you know, maybe looking back at two, two, there were two great things that happened out of 2020. One of them, when we were closed and we couldn't have customers, Roger Penske said, let's invest in things that we don't have time to do because we have people on property normally the rest of the year. So we were able to make all kinds of improvements to the facility. Uh, Roger helped us use that time in a way that really benefited us. And the second one was NASCAR needed a place to get races in by the end of the year. IndyCar needed to figure out a way to do the same thing. And so NASCAR and IndyCar coming together and saying, let's try and do this on the same weekend uh, at the same racetrack. So the first year it was IndyCar and Xfinity on the road course. And then we converted the track to the oval uh, the, the overnight. And then we did cup still on the oval. And then since 21, so 21, 22, and now 23, uh, we've done all of them on the road course. So that's, that's been kind of fun, a unique way for us to introduce IndyCar to NASCAR fans and introduce NASCAR to IndyCar fans, you know, and there is this friction between the two. It's less so now, but as a promoter, I, I need to kind of remind people that, that both series have these amazing talented drivers and they're, they both have their own unique way of, of appealing to fans. And if I have an opportunity to 
introduce one or the other to um, NASCAR or IndyCar to NASCAR. Um, it's good for the sport, even if they don't ultimately uh, continue to follow those sports. I just I want to try and get rid of some of the friction in the sport between the two. So that's been a fun thing about the weekend. What's unique maybe about this weekend is we continue to work with NASCAR. I, I'm not sure that this, this is a weekend that stays forever where you have the two together. So I remind people, if you want to see IndyCar and NASCAR together on the same weekend, uh, you know, this could be your last opportunity to do that. It, we, we haven't decided yet whether we go back to the Oval. If we went back to the Oval, obviously we're not going to run an IndyCar race on the Oval. And the challenge of converting the racetrack is so steep. I don't think we can do that bifurcated weekend uh, in the future. 2020 allowed us to do it because we didn't have fans in the infield. We didn't have fans at all. Uh, so it really uh, made it a, a lot easier. So I'm hoping that if you want to see NASCAR on the road course at the Speedway and you want to see Indy cars alongside it, this is a, a weekend that I hope people enjoy and come out to see. All right. So what I'm hearing is 2024 Brickyard 400 is back on the oval at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely one of the things we're talking about. We haven't made that yeah. commitment yet, but uh, but it is definitely one of the things we talk about or we're talking about. So I do think we we're within, you know, it could be this year or certainly in the next couple of years that that time where, you know, where, where this weekend of IndyCar and NASCAR together just isn't quite, uh, isn't quite working. Yeah, but it's interesting and it's unique. So to your point, if you want to see it, uh, do it now, do it now. 100%. I like that. Um, so, uh, let's talk a little bit while I got you, Doug, too, because one of the things that's also unique about Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the golf course, right? And it's got holes yep. inside the track. Yep. Um, you know, you go under the track to, to, uh, golf those holes. So, um, you know, I know you've been out there. Um, I think if I, if I saw correctly, you, uh, you've been swimming in the, the <laughs> pond there. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> so tell me about the course a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's a great course. Uh, but, but, uh, if I remember right too, a lot of improvements in the last handful of years. So, yeah, there, and that's another place where Roger's been really great in allowing us to invest in the in the golf course, uh, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was an IndyCar driver in the teens and then uh, World War One fighter ace, um, ended up buying the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the 1920s. And really all the place did was have one race a year, the Indianapolis 500. So they were only active in the month of May. And one of the things he wanted to do was try and keep something more active year round here. So in, in the late 20s, uh, Eddie Rickenbacker had our first golf course put in and that golf course is, has ranged from an 18-hole course to a 27-hole course, uh, and then back to an 18-hole course. Our current one was designed by Pete Dye in the 90s, and then uh, we've had the PGA, the LPGA, the Senior PGA, the Beatles have played our course, um, and what's unique about it now is it's 18 holes now, 14 outside the racetrack, and holes 7 through 10, those four holes are in the inside of the racetrack, and uh, that's basically open every day. It's a, it's a public course. Uh, and it's always voted one of the top courses in the state of Indiana and, and one of the one of the best country uh, co courses in the in the country. It's a great course to play. And it's really fun to play when there's uh, cars on track just because of the just <laughs> because of that ambiance of you're at a racetrack. And while you're at hole seven teeing off, there's cars behind you. And when you're at hole eight teeing off, uh, you've got cars either going down Holman or down the front stretch or down the back stretch. And it's a uh, it's a beautiful course. Rogers really allowed us to invest more and more in it. We've uh, Reduced our number of rounds from about 20,000 rounds a year to 15,000 because he wants the course to look really nice. So we spend a lot of time uh, trying to make the course look good. does have a lake in the infield. I, um, I swam in it as a way to help promote the fact that the U.S. Olympic swimming trials in 2024 will be here in Indianapolis. So a year out from that, I, I swam just to, just, just to uh, kind of help promote that, that swimming event. But uh, 
not not someplace I want to swim in every day. <laughs> now, are you a competitive swimmer? I mean, do you? Uh, yeah, do you I, I, yeah, I swam all through college, um, and then once I got done with uh, swimming in college, I, you know, other than a couple of masters meets here and there, right out of college, I've uh, uh, I, I haven't done much competing, but I, I still try and swim. Uh, I love swimming outside, and uh, I try and try and get in the water every once in a while. Nice. That's great. That's great. It's good. Good hobby. You know, keeps you keeps you active. And um, it's a tough one. You know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, if you're going to go any sort of distance in the water, um, you yep. got to be ready for it. It uh, You can't just jump. It's not like uh, and running's the same way. But, you know, you can you can kind of I feel like push your way through running a little bit more with swimming. It's like either either you've, you've built up or you haven't. And that's pretty much it. No, it's, it's, it's very true, but it's, it's, it's a, like running. It's a great sport. I mean, it's a team sport because you get to run or swim with a team, but it's also very individual. So you can compare, you know, your improvement really is based on what you can do your time. So you have a lot of control over your success, but it, it still gives you that team, you know, that team aspect as well. And it, and it does, does create some discipline, both running and, and swimming create a lot of discipline if you want to be competitive in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the swimming time trials, are they doing that at Lucas oil stadium? Is that where that's they are? Be? Yeah, that's what's so, so we, uh, one of the cool things about the city of Indianapolis and it's why the 500 works so well every year is our yeah. city is so committed to helping promote events. I mean, it's a full on community, a community thing. And, and the Indy 500 doesn't, isn't successful without everybody in this community, even if they don't come to the race, buying in and helping promote it. And, and that's how we do all our events here. So we have a local organizing committees that are volunteers that are really helping put the events on. So I'm the, I'm the co-chair of the, of the ticket sales and, and marketing uh, committee to really drive uh, sales and excitement for that. And we're going to build a couple of pools inside Lucas oil stadium. Uh, it will be really, really cool to see that come together. And then, so for, uh, for nine nights beginning June 15th next year, we'll be, we'll be getting our team ready to send off, uh, send off to Paris, you know, in, in 1924, um, the, the, the Olympic trials were here in Indianapolis at a pool on the north side of Indianapolis that no longer exists. So it's the hundred, uh, the hundred and the anniversary of that first time that the trials were held in Indy. So we're excited about it. Should have about 300,000 people over those nine days that'll come watch, watch the Olympic trials. That's pretty cool. How does that look logistically? How do you put a pool inside of a football stadium? Like what, what do they, does, does the, the turf roll? Like, I don't know. How does it, how does it happen? What do you do? So, so our sports corporation, uh, which was established in the '80s, is a group of folks that work full time to promote and build events here in the in the city of Indianapolis. And they've been actively involved in swimming for quite some time. We actually had a, a swimming meet in Gamebridge Fieldhouse uh, several years ago, so we've gone through that process. Uh, and then we have some great people that are on the local organizing committee on the ops and event side. That's their living. Is how do you put on events? So, so we've got a great group of people who've helped design it build it. We're going to take water from the white river and actually clean it up, put it in there. And then when we're done, that water goes back into the white river cleaner than we, than we took it out. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun, but just a lot of smart people uh, who understand <laughs> how to put events on and, and, and build pools. And, and, you know, we love, we love to do things kind of uh, different than anyone else here in this, in, in uh, the city of Indianapolis. And I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be outstanding. I can't wait to, I can't wait to swim a few laps in that pool. It's going to be really special. No, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Great. Well, Doug, what uh, you know, I obviously could probably talk to you for for hours, if not days here. I, I appreciate you taking time, but I want to be respectful of your time, obviously. Um, anything we haven't had the chance to talk about that you want to touch on before we before we wrap up? No, I, I think for me, the, just you know, I'm pretty fortunate to be, have been in this job uh, for 10 years. And and one of the things that I think is really, really important and what makes the Indy 500 special is just the way that that 
we connect to our customers and we don't get an opportunity to do this without customers who believe in your brand and and we aren't and we have to offer them something that makes that um, experience really special to them. So when you have 330,000 people like we had here for this past Indianapolis 500, uh, so many of them don't watch another race the rest of the year. Their racing experience is their one time a year that they come to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500. So it's this big event with all kinds of opportunities to experience it in a completely different way. If I'm sitting in turn one, my experience is completely different from the person who's sitting in turn three because it's a mile as the crow flies to get to that grandstand from there. So, so you have to really think about um, you have to think about how do you put this event on through the eyes of 300,000 plus people. And for us, I think one of the things in this in this world today, we forget that personal touch, that one on one hand to hand combat in the trenches, making sure that each and every customer has a great experience. And the only way you can do that is by talking to and listening to those customers. And that's maybe been the best part. The most fun part about my job is how do I how do we as an organization you know, communicate so that the 300,000 people here really believe that this is their racetrack. It is their event. Um, and it's, it's a privately owned company that's that 300,000 people believe is theirs and trying to keep that feeling, uh, in this event has been one of the most challenging things, but one of the most fun things that, uh, uh the, you know, that I do every day. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So you mentioned turn, turn one and turn three. So I got to ask, you know, what's your favorite vantage point to watch the race, right? Cause turn one, I mean, those cars are coming in at, at two twenty, coming straight at coming straight at you. And then they hit that, hit that bank. So what, what's your favorite vantage point? You know, it's, 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 uh, so I call customers every night on my way home and just to say, Hey, we don't get to run the 108th running in the Indy 500 in you know, 325 days without folks like you. Um, and when you have that conversation with people, you get a chance to say, okay, so where do you sit? how do you, how did you get introduced to the speedway? What, 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 what is it about your seats? And it's amazing how it doesn't matter where people sit. They think sit, they think they have the best seats in the world. Cause there's so much about the experience who they sit with, who introduced them. If I were saying you know, you could pick anywhere you want to sit. It's like B penthouse, maybe. Um, a lot of people like E penthouse, but if you get further into E penthouse, the view isn't quite as good as, as B penthouse. So B penthouse, which is turn one, uh, upper deck, you can, you've got video boards. You can see, you see them coming in and out of pits. You see them coming down the front stretch. Uh, that's probably what I would say, but each one of them has their own unique experience. People in turn three wouldn't leave turn three for all the money in the world, because they think, Hey, I know coming down the backstretch on the last lap going into turn three, I can tell you who's got, got a shot to win, which, which you may not have known when you saw him coming in turn one. So, um, you know, I, I'm a turn one guy, if I had to pick, but the thing that's so unique about this place is everybody's seats. Um, you know, they'll tell you they got the best seats in the venue. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. Well, Doug Bowles, president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Thank you so much for, uh, for hopping on and talking today. It was a great conversation and, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the partnership. Love working with you guys and uh, look forward to uh, uh, the rest of this season and certainly the 108th running the Indy 500 next May. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Doug. Thank you. Well, that was a really fun conversation with Doug Bowles, president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, If you haven't checked out 100 Days to Indy, I definitely recommend it. It's on the CW on demand right now. Um, Also, as Doug said, get your tickets to Brickyard Weekend if you haven't done that. And uh, also, we'll be at Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Reynolds Retail Summit uh, coming up here in September, September 25 and 26. So if you haven't registered for that yet, please do so at rayray.com slash amplify. 
Before we hop off, don't forget you can watch or listen to episodes of Connected on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe so you're notified every other week when new episodes are released. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in two weeks.